This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. And I call this a podcast, but eventually we'll be also YouTube TV, and some of you may see us there. And I want to thank those folks who have uh, helped keep us on the air by their contributions. And if anybody wants to contribute, uh, we are not a nonprofit. It's not a donation, but a contribution. Go to spiritmatterstalk.com and uh, click on the red button. It's our not guest red, today, it's the button. The button. <laughs> uh, our guest today, uh, Craig Hamilton. He is a pioneer in the emerging field of evolutionary spirituality and a leading voice in the movement for conscious evolution. A guiding force behind integral enlightenment, Craig offers spiritual guidance and teachings to a growing international community spanning 85 countries. Uh, he is known worldwide and we are very uh, thankful, uh, Craig, for you taking the time to come on with us today. Very well, thanks good. for having me. It's great to be with you guys. And Phil and I go back quite a ways and we you and back. I are just meeting. And great, to, great to jump in and talk about higher things. Craig, uh, fill our uh, listeners and now viewers in on uh, some of your spiritual background. If you could <clears throat> give us the short version of, you know, how you came to uh, your spiritual path and what led to the work you've been doing. How long is short version? <laughs> 25 Couple, words. Five minutes? No, about, about two or three minutes. Yeah. Two or three minutes. Okay. And then we'll, we'll elaborate. We'll... We'll yeah, sure. Well, well, the past is never <laughs> as interesting as the present or the future. But um, let's see. So I guess what I would say in a few minutes is, is that I, like, like many of us, I uh, began to feel a spiritual longing. I wasn't raised in a religious family at all. I was raised secular Unitarian, I would call it. <laughs> um, but in my teens, in my teens, I started to really feel that there was something deeper and something more. And I started taking up meditation practices when I was around 16. And that all came to me from the East. I, I read a lot of Eastern books and practiced a lot of Eastern meditation initially and started to have a series of spiritual experiences also in my late teens that kind of continued to intensify as I approached my 20s. And by the time I was in my 20s, I had basically decided that my life was about my spiritual awakening. And I was giving myself to it wholeheartedly, however that was going to unfold. And I spent a lot of time in my 20s traveling in the East. I spent time in monasteries in Thailand meditating. I spent time in India uh, doing intensive meditation retreats in a variety of different traditions and uh, kind of kind of reached a, a point where I started to sense that as much as we had to learn from the traditions, which was a lot because I found traditional spirituality very profound. I was a real, I was religious studies major in college and studied a lot of Eastern religion and was very passionate about it all. And, uh, but I just started to feel like there was a maybe a more scientific, a more uh, exploratory, investigative, experimental way to approach the spiritual path than just taking everything from the traditions at face value. And that essentially led me into a series of what I've come to call evolutionary laboratories or spiritual laboratories, which were really contexts here in the West where people 
And when I say laboratory, I, we, there are real meditation laboratories now where people are in lab coats, putting right. electrodes on your head. I don't mean those, but what I mean are essentially contexts where people come together to do intensive spiritual practice and really compare notes and say, well, what are you experiencing? What am I experiencing? How does this really work? Let's compare it to what the traditions tell us, but let's also be phenomenologists. Let's look at our own experience. And, you know, and, and, and I began to find that a lot of people are having awakening experiences. It's, it's actually fairly common that people have spiritual awakenings of various kinds, not just, you know, blissful experiences, but profound insight into the nature of reality. And out of, but, but out of, so I know I'm trying to do the short, but out of this sort of uh, in experimental spiritual laboratory approach, what, what I've come to are kind of what, I, what I've come to call uh, two, two kind of pieces of the spiritual path. One is what I call integral enlightenment. The other I call the practice of direct awakening. But what they both have in common is that they're really trying to reverse engineer awakened consciousness and turn it into a practice as opposed to I'm going to practice things that maybe someday will, you know, prepare me to have an awakening experience out in the future. And then maybe something will change. It's much more like we take the, the kind of wisdom of awakening, the, the natural ways of being that come from spiritually awakened consciousness. And we put them into practice in our, in our daily lives and, and in our meditation right now, all with the intent to be awake right now. Right. Not tomorrow, not in five minutes right now. And anyway, that's kind of been my whole, and that brought that body of work out into the world. And, you know, we can talk more about that if you want. All right, Craig, I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned that it was in your late teens that you sort of, uh, through a series of experiences or whatever, uh, decided to go full force into this. Mm. And, uh, but I'm wondering when you look back on your life, maybe even your childhood, uh, before that period of time, might you have had uh, a spiritual experience, an awake experience of awakening, something that triggered you back then that you couldn't put in any context or didn't know what to make of it. But when you look That's back, you had an experience like that. And maybe that uh, is what uh, was the seed that began to uh, bloom, blossom uh, in your late teens. I would say that's it's a great, very interesting question. I, I haven't really thought a lot about it, but there were there are actually two things that come to mind in response. So one is that I there was something that started to stir in me probably when I was around ten or eleven, where like my family was really into the outdoors, and I'm grateful for that because I'm really into the great mm -hmm. outdoors, and that you know I kind of got that from my family in a big mm -hmm. way. But I remember when we would sometimes go to a really beautiful place in nature, I had this compulsion to go and sit cross-legged on the edge of a cliff and just look out. And that was not something I got from my family of origin. It was just something in me where I just kind of, I, I didn't have, I wouldn't call it a spiritual experience per se, but there was some longing for more, some sense of connecting to something uh, bigger that I, I would do. And it, when I look back, I guess, kind of like you're saying, I, I kind of think, oh, maybe that was an early stirring, even though I didn't think of it as spiritual, I didn't tie it to religion, you know, it, there was nothing, didn't have a context for that. The other thing, and I don't know if this is or not, but as a kid, I, you know, a young kid, I would sometimes have this experience at night, like when I was lying in bed, of what I could only describe as a very intense energy. It didn't even feel necessarily good or bad, 
but it was a very intense kind of pressure and energy that would kind of come down and kind of, and I just remember it was this, you know, other world, you know, like it was out of the paradigm of ordinary consciousness in life. And it was just this thing. And I never talked to my parents about it. I never talked to anybody about it, but so I wonder, you know, and, and I could say either of those could have been early something. Glimpses. Maybe. Yeah. Hints. Craig, um, on your uh, website, which uh, we should uh, tell people is craighamiltonglobal.com. <clears throat> there That's are two because I couldn't get craighamilton.com because it's owned by an insurance agency <laughs> in Canada. With the, and the partners, are the last names are Craig and right. Hamilton. That's hysterical. <laughs> and they're not giving it up. <laughs> that's why that's why we are spirit matters talk instead of spirit matters somebody has spirit matters uh, um, so uh, on on your uh, uh, website which uh, I encourage all our listeners to visit there are two courses and you alluded to them before one is called the practice of direct awakening a 12 week they're both online of course um, and you were doing online courses pre-pandemic and uh we have been a kind of a pioneer of that um so one is the a 12 week uh, course called the practice of direct awakening the other is integral enlightenment let's start with the first one the practice of direct awakening how would you describe this what do you mean by direct awakening? What's in the course? So thank, yeah, thanks for that. So, uh, so the practice of direct awakening is really this idea that I brought up very briefly in my attempt to do a short <laughs> introduction. Um, and what the idea of direct awakening is, okay, if you, if you think about the spiritual path, how, how we've been taught it, you know, obviously there's thousands of ways we've all been taught it, but a lot of spiritual, a lot of enlightenment teachings, a lot of teachings that point toward awakening, see it as a practice where you do tech, this technique or that technique, maybe you're chanting something or you're visualizing something or you're following your breath or patooning to your body or any number or you know, labeling every thought and sensation, you know, all the different ways we can meditate. Um, what most of them have in common is that the technique itself isn't, it doesn't have anything specific to do with spiritual awakening. It's a technique that you're doing in the hope that it might bring you to an awakening. So I'm not, I'm saying the goal of most spiritual practices is some kind of enlightenment or awakening, but the practices themselves typically are, are just, a practice that someone has determined is going to help, you know, calm your mind or, you know, resonate, resonate, you get you resonant with some higher consciousness or something, but it's all, you know, a lot, a lot of it anyway, is what I would maybe call an indirect path in that you do it. And eventually it's supposed to open, open something up. So with the practice of direct awakening, the idea is that, or really the question that drove me to this, to the discovery of it and, and the teaching of it was, was, could it be possible for us to practice being awake when we meditate? So the practice of direct awakening is a meditation course and it's an approach to meditation. And there are a whole bunch of different uh, sort of what I would call 
gateways to awakened consciousness that we practice in it. It's not one thing, it's a dozen things. But, um, but what they all have in common is that when you sit down to meditate, what you're sitting down to do is to practice something, some natural uh, quality or natural, uh, what we might call disposition or character of awakened consciousness. So I'll just give one example to, to give you a sense of what I mean. So if we think about what are the, how is awakened consciousness different than, different than unawakened consciousness? And let's take the Buddha who said that, you know, unenlightened consciousness, one of the things that characterize it is grasping. It's we're grasping on, we're holding on basically two things, grasping and pushing away kind of take the Buddha right down to the simplest. You're, you're either grasping for certain experiences, trying to hold on to positive thing, positive feelings, and we're pushing away discomfort. And fundamentally, this is a kind of a basic stance of unenlightened consciousness. Enlightened consciousness, awakened consciousness, on the other hand, you could simply say does the opposite of that. It doesn't grasp on. When any of us steps into our higher self or our awakened self, we notice, oh, I, I don't need to hold on to anything. I, in fact, life is much more interesting when it's just a fluid, it's just flowing and I'm not really resist, I'm not resisting anything. I'm willing to face everything, be with everything that is. I'm also not grasping to have and hold something. I'm, I'm an open, fluid, uh, kind of conscious being. Now, could you practice that in meditation? Could you sit down for half an hour and practice not resisting anything that arises? So you make room for every possible experience that you could have in meditation from the, the terrible to the sublime. And, and you guys have probably both done a lot of meditation. So you've probably experienced both extremes. Most of us have. And you make room for it all. And you don't hold on to the positive experiences. You don't grasp after subtle feelings of bliss. You don't try to sustain some intense clarity that you experience. You just let it all come and you let it all go with total ease and flow. That is, a I would argue, that's a direct practice of being awake. If you can do that for half an hour, the, it, let's put it this way. If you can do that for a half an hour, it wasn't your ego that was doing it. It was your awakened self. Because I, I make the point that the only part of us and part, it's part of why I call it direct awakening. The only part of us that can do a practice like that is awakened consciousness, which we all have, we all have access to all the time. In fact, it's, I would argue, it's the very consciousness that's hearing these words, that's listening to this podcast, that experiences everything you experience in your life. It is our true nature, our essence. So that's, that's a, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, that, I, I, that's a snapshot. Very, very well articulated. I mean, I, I've been practicing TM for 50 years. And a lot of what you describe is matches my experience. And I, but I did want, I wanted to ask you something. You, you when you started out, you traveled the world and uh, went to the East and was uh, drawn to different traditions uh, and, and then and a value and maybe a problem with uh, the, uh, different traditions. Um, and you, so you sort of, as I understand it, look beyond that. And I'm wondering, you teach, you have students in 85 countries, you teach worldwide. Uh, and I'm, and you must encounter people that are very connected to a tradition and people that are not connected to any tradition. And I'm going to guess it, it might be in some ways easier to teach those students that are not connected to a tradition 
than those that are connected to maybe a very spiritual tradition. And I just wanted your, your thoughts and reflections on that. I would say, honestly, probably some kind of both and to that. Like in other words, so here, here's where it's easier to, to teach to a non-traditional person, right? Is they don't care, they're not carrying the baggage. They're not carrying the dogmas. They don't, you know, traditional people can have a lot of fixed ideas. They were taught this way their whole life. The book says it's this way. And so, you know, try to open that mind up and say, well, why don't you just see try these techniques and see what they reveal in your experience and let go of all those old ideas. It can be, I think the point you're making is, well, that could be harder. The interesting thing though, I found in my work about people who do have a traditional background and even one they're very committed to is often what they have that some of the folks in the other category don't is often they have um, a very living connection to the sacred. They've got a sense of something bigger and something beyond. And that is something, and, and, and that enables them to really uh, access a practice like this, you know, maybe in a deeper way sometimes than somebody who's kind of more secular, doesn't have that right. intense relationship to the sacred. And now they're doing these techniques and they're having these experiences, but they even don't even have like the, there's a kind of reverence and a kind of almost devotional element often to really, let's call them religious people, let's say. And that, powers the spiritual path and it powers the path of awakening in a Let way in a unique way go ahead what a question yeah. phil and that is that uh by that you mean that you may encounter somebody that has no connection to a tradition and uh so they will practice uh so that uh, they can you know sleep better or they can <laughs> more relaxed during the day whereas the person from the tradition may realize when they enter this, I'm in this for the big game. I'm in this because I want uh, uh, to uh, reach full human potential or however they might express it in their tradition. No, very nicely said. And let's talk about what the big game is for a second that you named and what that difference is. Because see, see another one of the, you know, it's one, isn't it wonderful that so many people in the West and in the developed world and even in a secular way are now meditating and doing spiritual, you know, doing yoga, meditating, doing these things. Isn't that, you know, fantastic for the evolution of our planet? You know, may that flourish and, and accelerate. But, but often the context in which people are doing these practices is, is even if, because you mentioned one end of the spectrum, like I'm just doing it to sleep or I'm just doing it to improve my concentration or my performance at work, you know? <laughs> and, and that's kind of one end of the spectrum. But even let's say those who really are, they've read spiritual books for a long time. They've been maybe on some meditation retreats. They're more earnest, like they are seeking higher consciousness and enlightenment. But what, how to put it? What, what, what the religious person, the, and again, there are, like we're saying, there are advantages and disadvantages for all of us on the path. We all have our kind of strengths and weaknesses coming into the spiritual path. But one of the strengths that people who have, have stuck to a tradition and care about it and are passionate is often they have a sense that it's not about me and my, and my uh, self-fulfillment. It's not about even my enlightenment in the small sense. In other words, because a lot of us approach enlightenment like, oh, that's like the ultimate pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You're happy and blissful all the time. And that's what life's about. And I want that. But the, but the religious person often, you know, who's, who's, who's 
been religious, they're like, well, I know that even if I'm after my awakening, I'm, I'm after it for God or for the celestial illumination of all beings or, you know, the liberation of the world from, from ignorance and suffering. And, and so it's often easier to connect with a higher, deeper context for our practice, which in my experience, where I'm really trying to teach people to awaken, that's everything because you can't really do it for yourself. You can't, I'm sure you know, you can't really awaken for yourself. You can go a certain distance on the path, but, but the, the sacrifice that's required to wake up and to step into a, an awakening, you've gotta, you've gotta leave your story behind. You gotta leave your personal, this is me, I'm so important. <laughs> that's gotta go completely. And, and who, why would we make such a sacrifice of the thing that has been the center of our whole life? Well, maybe because we're in touch with a higher context. And that might enable it. So. I, I wanted to get back to something you said earlier, but as, as long as we're here, in my experience, um, people who come from secular backgrounds, like I, I probably had a similar background to yours, only it was in the heart of the biggest city in the country, not not the woods or, you know, nature to me was the park down, the, you know, a few mm -hmm. blocks away. But um but I had no religious training whatsoever. So when I came to the path, I had certain things to unlearn. Mm. But I noticed that people who came from religious backgrounds, they had a different set of things to unlearn. Right. And different, well yeah. different things to work out. Have you found that to be the case? Well, ab yeah, absolutely makes sense. I was, that's kind of, yeah, what I was just pointing to is that, that yeah, we, we have different, I was, we were kind of speaking about the different strengths. Now you're speaking about the different well, maybe struggles. And obviously for a person who's kind of more, I mean, let's, you know, religions have told us how to live and what to do and how the cosmos is organized and what God is or the divine is and, you know, fed us full of, text of books about that and teach it. So, so how do all of that can get in the way of direct experience? I mean, any, any idea about what anything is gets in the way of a direct experience of it. If I'm sitting here talking to you two guys and I'm like, well, Phil's this, he's a, you know, spiritual philosopher. And Dennis, I don't know your whole background, but you know, Dennis is this, and I've got rigid ideas about you. I'm not going to be here present to experience you. So, so, and, and kind of just encounter who, what your soul and, and your essence, whereas, and, and the same is true for awakening. If I've got a bunch of big ideas about oh, how it all works and what the, often the problem also in traditional context is the progression. The progression has been defined. You go to this step and then you're ready for this step and then it's this step and then that step. And, and the, the budding student who starts to suddenly experience this step way up here gets told by the traditional teacher, no, no, it's beyond you. Just stay focused down here. And often might have been really catalyzed to something by that awakening they were having, but they're told they're not ready. So, you know, all, there are a lot of things like that in, the, in traditions. And I mean, even traditional mysticism that that I think can get in the way of a more organic 
unfolding of our spiritual path. Um, on the other side of it, what's the unlearning for the <laughs> for the secular person? Well, it's kind of the I, I would I and I could speak to this in my own experience. Even though I had a strong spiritual longing, and even though I've had a lifetime, you know, whatever forty years now of spiritual and religious experiences that have blown my mind to bits, I I can still see the um, the pattern or the kind of template of a scientific atheistic worldview still is in my psyche and I'll still kind of feel the, the, the tendency to disbelieve or to reduce, which are, we, of course is scientific modernism is yeah. so embedded yeah. in that. And I can say, yeah, that's still in my world. So yeah, that's yeah. something we all, we have to unlearn yeah, yeah. to be open to a mystery that our mind can't know. Yeah. I've often, I've often felt yeah. um, my, um, the, the 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 New York skepticism that I was raised in kept me from being too embroiled in a cult or anything like that, but it also can go into cynicism. Sure, <laughs> and that that could sure. be a detriment. I want. Can I, Dennis? Can I oh, go yeah, back no. to earlier? You were talking about um, an example of of the uh, direct path that. Uh, in the forms of meditation you teach. And a lot of what you describe sounds to me like very traditional in some traditions, some lineages, uh, sure. instructions for meditation, mm -hmm. not being attached to the things that arise and, and so on and so forth. And, and it sounded like that, like uh, meditation instructions, but framed in a slightly different way. And I and and I I, I found the the framing of it as you know calling upon a, a quality of awakening as opposed to just here's how you do this, and um, that part is interesting. But would you would you agree that you're still you know you're teaching a method that is? Well, yeah. Well, and let's even say um, just just to your your bigger point about. Hey, Craig, you didn't invent this. I want to be clear. I don't think I invented anything. <laughs> I wasn't. And, no, no, I know. But, 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 you know, to be honest, right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't feel like I invent anything, but I do feel even like the kinds of direct teachings that I'm teaching in meditation in traditional contexts were only given to extremely advanced students. I would say that for the most part. They were not where you started. And, and, and there are good and, you know, there are kind of pros and cons to that because, you know, in many ways, a kind of direct path requires a lot from us. It requires a lot of discernment. It requires a kind of very, a lot of stability of kind of character and ability to be really present. Like there's, it does demand a lot. And, and traditionally, the way you cultivated a lot of the things you need to be able to do a direct practice like this was to become a monk and go through all the rigors of education and learning and mind training and physical training and you know de debate on you know, there was a whole world that you would go through before they give you these like like in say buddhism like in tibetan buddhism the dzogchen or the mahamudra teachings which do re do resonate very much with what i'm talking about for instance but but those were way way up the chain now I'm not alone in saying this. The Dalai Lama said the same thing that I'm about to say, which is that I believe that the kind of people who are, you know, in 
the Western world, the developed world, the, you know, educated world, whatever, who are getting onto the spiritual path already have a lot of what we might call the cognitive and emotional and maybe a moral development at a fairly high level that enables us to go straight to the direct path and do this. So um, I would argue with the traditionalists, it was like, no, 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 you got to do your hundred thousand prostrations and your, <laughs> you know, gazillion mantras and visualizations yeah. and everything else before we'll try to introduce the enlightened mind to you directly. Um, but but the, to get to your, what you had a specific, sorry, that, I kind of answered the first half, but the specific question was, am I teaching a method? So yeah, it's a method, but but I've, I've actually spent a lot of time trying to, trying to talk about it, not as a method. <laughs> because anytime we talk about a method, well, it's a, any, you know, even the idea of practice, I, I teach spiritual practice, but the moment we st- take up a practice orientation, what are we practicing for? The future. You know, we practice our violin for the, you know, to get better at it for the future. We practice, you know, our sport to get stronger and more agile and limber so we can perform in the competition. We practice for the future. And this is, and anytime we're practicing for the future, we're missing the main event, which is already happening. It's the consciousness that's already here right now, but revealed in its essence because we looked at it. We looked, we, we made ourselves available to it. So you're, yes, you're hitting on a lot no of the beautiful, <laughs> no, it's that you're, you're touching on a lot of the beautiful paradoxes of, of the path. That, great, that great. Um, I have one last question and then I'm going to turn it over to Phil. So I have another appointment, but, uh, it, and it's, it's a follow-up on what you were just saying, I think. And that is that, um, you've been teaching for a number of years. Uh, the students that are coming to you now is the, are there goals? Do you see a change? From what it was 10 years ago 20 years ago however long you've been teaching and and you have you seen or do you think it's reflective of if there is a change uh a change in the global or collective consciousness in the world mm. yeah that's interesting i would say yeah there are, things are changing and i was i was just talking with uh, about this with a friend yesterday that you know when i was a spiritual seeker and doing a lot of my intensive spiritual work. And, and, and even when I started teaching the, this whole East meets West spiritual kind of convergence was still very, a very dominant context for spiritual seeking, meaning a lot, you know, a lot of people were still very oriented to Vedanta and Buddhism and, you know, Kashmir Shaivism, whatever, you know, many different kinds of Indian, you know, Indian things that arose from India really was, was widespread. And, and in that context, people were seeking self-realization, enlightenment, God realization. They were, that was an active thought. I'm trying to pursue that because that's what I've read about in the books. And that's, you know, and I've had an experience. I went to a satsang with the enlightened guru and I had a deep experience. And that's like the context for my work. I would say that East meets West Eastern context seems to be fading from center stage in the, in the kind of world of people doing 
spiritual practice and seeking. It's becoming, I wouldn't necessarily say more secular. I mean, maybe it, it probably is becoming more secular just because of, you know, meditations now getting pushed out by apps on your phone and, you know, it's, <laughs> it is getting mainstream. So it probably is drawing in more people from a mm -hmm. kind of secular orientation. But, um, but so I would say that's one thing is that context seems to be shifting to just a more, more like, I just want to, I want to live a good life. I want to live a full human life. And I, I feel that spirituality seems like a big important part of that. And so I want to do that too. And I want to become better. And so I want to do that. So um, there's that, but, but to what you're asking, I would also say that um, people, there are a lot more people who have done a lot more spiritual practice now than there were 20 years ago. They've done 20 years more spiritual practice, right? And so yeah. I, I do find more what I would call kind of very spiritually mature students mm -hmm. showing up who've really done a lot of work. You know, I don't know how many times they hear people say, oh, I've done, you know, 10, you know, month long retreats, you know, and this work just blew my mind, you know, or whatever. I get this kind of right. excited people because they, because somehow I penetrated something direct for them that was, mm -hmm. they weren't getting from all the traditional stuff. So. Uh, there are Good. a couple. Um, we have nice to meet you, Dennis. I guess you're leaving. Nice meeting you. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, Dennis, you. we'll, we'll love, talk to you later. We'd love to do a, uh, Phil, uh, and later. turn it over to you, but would love to do a follow-up interview because there's a lot more we could get into for sure. So right. okay. thank you very much. Let's do it. Okay. See you, Dennis. Have a good evening. So, Craig, in the, in the uh, two or three minutes we have left, uh, once upon a time, there was a magazine called What's, What is Enlightenment? And you were involved with it. I want to ask you. Yeah. If you have. You're talking about the ancient history before well, the no, internet. But, <laughs> right. A magazine. With a paper. magazine. Yeah. But, it was printed and sold in but, stores. Yeah. Wait, and the, uh, go but ahead. The, the name of the magazine uh, is still a question. And uh, my, sure my question to no, you. No, no, I've answered it, Phil. Didn't I just answer it completely? No, <laughs> I want the answer. No, the question, my question is, and, and I know you need more time, but in a couple of minutes, do you, how do you feel now about the question itself and whether there is such a thing that has been called enlightenment? Is it the same thing as what you're calling awakening or others mm -hmm. call realization? Is there an end state to the evolution of consciousness or not? How, do you, how have you come to see these oh, that's great. That's minor issues? <laughs> that's a wonderful <laughs> question to end on too. Um, so I again find myself saying yes and no. So, so like as you're intimating, this is an enormous question that could be the beginning of an hour long conversation. So, okay. but to try to get right to the essence, I, I think I would say that uh, let's, let, let's first take the, yes, there is an enlightened consciousness and what you're calling end state, like a real goal. Uh, let's just call it whether it's an end state exactly because I'm going to also say why it's not an end state but but, okay, but even a minutes. beginning state but let's say there's a beginning state called enlightened consciousness but that it's completely different than unenlightened consciousness and that there is a radical shift that we can make into a completely different experience of being alive and a completely different way of living and by that I mean a different relationship to our mind 
a different relationship to our feelings, a different set of motivations arising from something beyond us, compelling us in the world, completely uh, subverting the ordinary structure of ego motives and instinctual motives that drive human behavior and that takes over the organism. And we become a living, breathing, passionate expression of something infinite that we can't even understand or, or know with our minds, but that infuses us, fills us with love and, and um, passion for higher evolution and, and spreading the, the potential for this possibility. And because it's really the, it's the goal of human life. It's the highest possible human potential. And it would, and if it could spread widely enough, it would completely change the world because it would, it would eradicate the short-term self-interested personal motivation that is kind of wrecking everything. So, so enlightenment in that sense, I would say absolutely exists and, and it's a real possibility. Okay. Now you is have it an 30 end state? seconds but for it, the butt. But is it an end state? No, no, it's not an end state. It's a state that then opens us to what? To continue to no longer be in the way of evolution. So you've gotten out of the way. So now your life can begin to flow and you can easily adapt and evolve and grow and expand. And so you're on a constant journey of unfolding of goodness, truth and beauty and love into the world, but it's never ending and it's not an end state. So. Sounds great. You did, you did it perfectly. <laughs> there you go. Craig, we have so much more we could talk about. We'll have you back on the show. Thanks for being with us. Everybody Thanks for having go, me. Google Craig <laughs> Hamilton, uh, Craig Hamilton Global. And uh, we'll have all this on the website. And thanks for being with right. us. It's Thanks been so a much joy. for having me. Take, Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.